0: You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. It's great to see everyone here this morning, but especially the kids that are with us uh, today. Um, Kids, you're an important part of this congregation and of the kingdom of God, and so we think it's incredibly exciting and valuable for you to experience church with us. And also, parents, in case you're worried, they can handle it. They can handle it, and I can handle the squirming while I'm preaching, so don't worry about it. And speaking of kids, I think one thing that we don't often realize or that we kind of gloss over is that Daniel and his three friends were probably teenagers. They were teenagers, probably around 17 years old or younger, when they were shipped off to Babylon. Can you imagine being that young, having not even graduated high school yet, and then having your king just hand you over as tribute to such an immoral and hostile city like that. What is this, the Hunger Games, right? Um, And yet these teenagers still somehow find the determination to be resilient in their faith and in God in the midst of all of it at 17 years old. That's pretty incredible, right? And with all that being said, all you kids and, and youth. Out there this morning, you are capable of more for God's kingdom than you might even think. I just look at Daniel and his friends. Thankfully, even as we think of Remembrance Day, thankfully, we live in a country where we don't have to deal with these types of circumstances and challenges like Daniel and his friends did. But um, there are still challenges. And, and speaking of which, when I was growing up, I went to public school for junior high and and senior high. It's called middle school now, I guess. I don't know. Middle school and senior high. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. It it was fine. But um, when it came to my faith, it was often challenging. And I'm not talking about the curriculum part. That part was fine, except for maybe that one topic in health class. But the challenging part for my, my faith as a teenager was the peer pressure from my classmates. And, and when I look back, I think, I think it was actually good for me because these challenges against my faith or, or pressures to conform or fit in, first of all, constantly caused me to ask deep questions about my faith and why I believe what, what I believed and what it meant to be Christian. And, uh, but also that season in my life gave me a lot of practice in how to be on guard and to stand firm in who I was. And though it sounds cliche, it's, it's true. Quite often I had to make a decision to either follow Jesus or follow the crowd. And I wasn't always perfect in that. I'm not perfect. I often followed the crowd. I'm a sinner like everybody else. But, but the process still taught me how to be determined in my faith. And even love like Jesus calls us to, even in the midst of being questioned or made fun of or peer pressured or when I was tempted to fit in. And As Christians living in this secular world today, we don't need to go to public school to feel this kind of pressure from society to conform or compromise. It's all around us, right? I mean, we just have to log on to the internet. We just have to walk down the street. We just have to go to work, watch a show on Netflix, listen to a podcast, watch the news, read some tweets or posts on Facebook. And what we'll find is that, whether it's subtly or obviously, <clears throat> intentionally or not, we're, we're constantly being socially indoctrinated, right? We're, we're told how to act, what to say, when to be offended, who to affirm, what to agree with, who to emulate, what to believe, and who to demonize, all under the threat of being demonized ourselves if we say something wrong, right? And on top of that, we're constantly also faced with the seduction of the temptations of the world, endless entertainment, adult sites, online shopping, social media, which, by the way, has been scientifically proven to rewire our brains and affects relationships, and it causes us to be addicted. So whether we realize it or not, as, as Christians, we're, we're, we, we are cultural and religious exiles in a world that, that's using every available means to distract us from our faith, to normalize much of what the Bible calls sin, and to culturally assimilate or indoctrinate those of us who just might have different opinions or values. In other words, we live in a world that's constantly forcing us to make a decision to either be determined in our faith or to go along with the way of the world. And it's, and it's this example of determination in the midst of Babylon, which we see in Daniel and his friends, that I want to talk about and hopefully we can learn from this morning, because their story is quite inspiring and pretty incredible. So, as we learned last week, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were taken from their home of Jerusalem, given to King Nebuchadnezzar of the, the new empire of Babylon, and, and, and they were given as part of an initial tribute by the king of Judah. And also it was probably a way of avoiding war with them at that time. And again, forcing payments of tribute, taking holy items, and removing people from the land was all part of the Babylonian template or process of subjugating and controlling the nations under their empire. These vassal nations. So, the, but the primary goal in doing this was to colonize and assimilate all the nations and peoples to become like them, to become like Babylonians. That's their goal. Because if they're like Babylonians, they're not going to rebel against Babylon. This is what's called cultural assimilation. Cultural assimilation. This is a definition. Cultural assimilation is the process in which a minority group or culture comes to resemble a dominant group or assume the values, behaviors, and beliefs of another group. That's cultural assimilation. So in order to accomplish this, the Babylonians would take people out of their own home nations and take them into Babylon. One of the ways they did this, as we read in Daniel, is they would take high-standing members of these vassal nations, mostly males who were relatives to nobility or royalty, and integrate them into society, into Babylonian society, in order to both be both re-educated and seduced into their culture, religion, and history. What's interesting to note, first of all here, though, is that not only did these particular exiles have to be members of nobility, or royalty to qualify as if they wanted to qualify but they had to meet a list of other qualifications as well qualifications which say a lot about babylonian society and and also the role that these exiles were meant to play it says they had to be first of all ridiculously good looking right ridiculously good looking teachable they had to be teachable they had to be able to serve and they had to be incredibly smart. So, ridiculously good looking, teachable, able to serve, and incredibly smart. smart which, and you can probably confirm with the church board, are, are the four reasons that I was hired here as a pastor. I'm, yeah, I know. You guys are laughing at the, um, I don't know, the good looking thing. I'm probably there. Anyways, um, I'm just kidding. But anyway, these men basically had to be perfect specimens, really. And all of which says a lot about the expectations and the importance that their culture placed on on physicality and looks and and being served and other things of that sinful and selfish nature, which we won't talk about on this Family Sunday. But things that relate even relate to our society today, right? And anyways, once they were re-educated and therefore assimilated, they were meant to either serve in the courts of Babylon, serve the king, or sometimes even be sent back to their homeland to tell their fellow countrymen how wonderful Babylon was in order to further the process of assimilation there. Uh, anyways, as David Kinneman and Mark Matlock write, empires subjugate weaker nations of the earth using a variety of tactics, not all of which are military. Yes, empires use, <coughs> excuse me, yes, empires use violence and power to achieve dominance. But military means often go hand in hand with colonial strategies deployed to transform the language, economics, and cultural imagination of conquered peoples. The Jewish elite were captured after Babylonians' military conquest of Judah, forcibly taken to the empire's capital, and subjected to a cultural conquest nearly as devastating as their martial defeat. The book of Daniel is a vivid account. Of Babylon's culture, culture eradication campaign and how some exiles successfully resisted. So Daniel and his friends—they're they're taken out of their homes, taken into exile. They arrive in Babylon, and immediately their process of cultural assimilation and reprogramming—or what we might even call brainwashing—begins. Starting first of all by. Being renamed, they're given different names, and we're going to talk more about their names next week. But for now, we can see that even even the changing of their Jewish names to Babylonian names was meant to curb their faith in God and turn their hearts to the Babylonian beliefs. And then after after that, they were enrolled in school, so they're basically given a a free three-year ride in the University of Babylon. And all some of the students over here are like, "Free school? Where do I sign up?" Right? Especially after you know that budget. Um, (laughs) but hold on, don't get too excited because they didn't get to choose their major. This education was for the purpose of teaching them the wisdom, literature, and language of the Chaldeans who were the wise men and, and, and and the King's advisors in Babylon. And again, they were taught these things for the purpose of culturally assimilating their language, beliefs, and making them useful to the King. And of course, Finally, one of the most important parts of cultural assimilation is making someone enjoy and then rely on the culture. This is the tactic of every drug dealer that's ever existed, right? It starts with seduction. Try this for free. You'll love it. You'll enjoy it. And then all of a sudden you can't live without it. You rely on it. And this is, this is the, exactly the type of method that's happening here in Daniel. The goal is to seduce them into not only enjoying and, and loving the culture and life of Babylon, but also to physically and spiritually rely on it for daily living. To make them dependent and then, and so that they would forget who they were. Right? So this is why the king instructed that these, these exiles are to be fed from his own table. Right, the chief eunuch was to give them fine wine and seasoned meats fit for the king. This is this is high class. This is high class. Now now at this point you might be thinking, well it doesn't seem so bad. Yeah, they were taken from their homes. That would be jarring. But now they're given delicious food and fine wine, free education and lodgings. They get to serve in the court. That's that's not too shabby it could be worse they could be like the other jews that were that became slaves and filled the workforce and i'm sure most of the other young jewish men who were taken into babylon with daniel and his friends were making the most of it i mean we don't hear anything about them so we could probably assume that the seduction worked because let's let's be real here when when you're taken from your homeland to be a slave in exile really you're presented with seemingly only two options. First option, you can resist. You can resist. You can try to run and hide or even stand in rebellion rebellion, defiance and say, no way I'm not going. I'm not doing it over my dead body, which is exactly what would happen. So that's your first option. Your second option in that situation would be simply to give in. To accept your circumstances, allow your faith and heritage to be compromised, or even just discarded altogether as you become fully immersed and seduced into the culture you're living in. And we've seen these two extremes occur among Christian circles today. We've seen Christians attempt to resist the world through either trying to hide in fear or, or shelter themselves from society in convents or colonies. Or on the flip side, we've seen Christians try to resist through attempting to morally control society. And we've also seen Christians compromise their values and beliefs. This is happening a lot in our day and age. Or even giving giving them up altogether in an attempt to remain culturally relevant or woke or because they've been seduced into the ideologies or pleasures of the world. The problem with the first option, resisting, and running away, we're trying to control society. The problem with that is that Jesus has called us to go into the world to love others and to go into the world to proclaim the gospel. So that means that we can't hide from the world in fear, and neither can we, can we coerce or force others to live a certain way. That's not how we're called to live. And the problem with the second option is that if we're compromising our faith and the beliefs that Jesus taught us in his word then we're no longer following Jesus, no matter how much we try to justify it. So neither option works for us. So what do we do? Well, good thing for us, Daniel shows us a third and better option, where he's able to both live in the world, but not of it. Right? Where, where he's able to serve in Babylon without forgetting his identity or even compromising his faith where it matters. In fact, it says in verse 8 that Daniel was determined not to defile himself. He was determined, even in the midst of such a powerfully subjugating and and indoctrinating culture, he was determined not to give up his heritage and his faith. And I think he's able to do this, first of all, because he trusts in God's faithfulness. He seems to accept his current circumstance and also the Lord's hand upon it all. He trusts that God's moving in, in his place and in his time. And so from that perspective of trust, he then accepts his role as a student and servant of Babylon. He even accepts his name change because he knows he's in a different culture and that's what they require. He never forgets his real name, though. But he acqu- acquiesces to things that were out of his control and things that didn't really affect his faith. In the same way that in Canada, right, kids have to follow a school curriculum. We have to pay taxes. We have to pay car insurance, unfortunately. We have to obey the laws of the land, right? These are things that are required of us as we live in this country. Of course, it would be silly if we tried to resist on account of, oh, we're citizens of God's kingdom. I'm not paying these taxes, right? That would be silly. No, we, we're here in this country, so, so we do what we're required to do. And Daniel seems to accept these things He's required to do. He goes to school, he answers to a different name, he lives in captivity, he serves the king. He serves the king faithfully. He probably even dresses like them. But yet when it comes to matters of faith, he doesn't compromise. When it comes to being seduced by and made to rely on the on on the king's food and wine, that's where he draws the line. And honestly that's the only thing about his situation that he can probably control. And it's not clear what was unclean about the king's food. They don't tell us. It could have been food presented to idols. It, it could have been non-kosher against God's law, and diet means a lot in God's law. We, we don't know uh, what, was, what, would have, what was unclean about it. But either way, Daniel determined to remain undefiled. In other words, he, he was determined within his heart and mind to remain obedient to God. That even as he lived in Babylon... He would not be seduced into it or become reliant on it. And God blessed him for his faithfulness. The chief eunuch who was in charge of feeding them, even under the threat of being killed for not doing his job, he, he agreed, by the grace of God, to let Daniel and his friends try a different diet, which is probably vegetables and, and maybe even grains and water for 10 days. And so even though they ate no meat or fatty foods or anything like that, at the end of their trial run, it says that they looked healthier and even more well-fed than their peers. And so the chief eunuch not only let them continue with their personalized food plan, but provided it for them. But the passage doesn't end there. It goes on to say that God also rewarded their faithfulness by giving them wisdom and smarts It also says he gave Daniel the the ability to interpret visions and dreams, which will come in handy for him later. And then after they're presented to King Nebuchadnezzar, they're given favor with him because he finds them to be ten times better than anyone else. They did the calculations like, yep, exactly ten times better. And finally, it also says that Daniel's given long life. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah show us what it looks like to live in the world but not of it, to remain faithfully resilient in sinful Babylon, and that God is with us and equips us to excel when we are faithful. They model what we're instructed to do in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, which says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. So what does this all mean for us today? How can, we, how can we learn from this? Well, first of all, it's a reminder to be on, on our guard. To be on our guard. As, as we've learned, the goal of Babylon, and also the devil, is to turn us from God or, or to get us to compromise our faith. Whether it's seductions or idolatry or through the distraction of nonstop mindless entertainment on our devices, Sometimes I, I log on to my phone specifically to go to my Bible app, and then I find in two seconds later I'm on Facebook. Or whether it's to make us apathetic or offended and bitter, or, or whether it's in the form of societal pressure or, or, or re-education meant to, meant to assimilate or challenge our values and beliefs. Right, We're constantly being tempted to turn from Jesus and become like the world. And so we need to be on our guard. And let's remember, temptation is called temptation because it's tempting, because it doesn't seem bad. Well, There's nothing wrong with that, right? Like eating from the king's table. It usually looks very good and enticing. And so we need to have discernment as we recognize that Babylon is always stretching out its hand to offer its best food and wine to draw us in, tempting us to place our hope and trust and pleasure in its idols, its ideologies, and its supply. Secondly, though, Daniel's story teaches us that we must also stand firm as Christians. Like Daniel, we must be determined in our hearts to remain faithful. We have to make that decision. We have to be determined in our hearts to remain faithful. And being determined doesn't mean being stubborn, Or close minded, or arrogant, or even ignorant. It's not like we're like blah, 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 not listening to the world around us. That's not what being determined means. It means that from a place of knowing who we are and whose we are, we can then remain resilient and firm in our faith. It's unlikely that Daniel decided all of a sudden to start following God while he was in exile. No, he was most likely already a devout follower of God before this. And therefore, because he knew God, because he knew God's law, because he knew he was a child of God, he was able to determine in his heart not to stray from it and could also then discern what would take him away from it. Which means that if we don't know who we are as Christians if we don't have a relationship with God, if we don't have knowledge of the word, or, understand, or if we don't understand our calling as the church, we probably won't be able to stand firm in exile. We'll be easily swayed by any uneducated Joe with a podcast. But like Daniel, if we're, we're to stand firm and, and determine in our hearts not to be defiled. We need to be seeking God. We need to have a deep and ever-growing relationship and and ever-growing knowledge of who God is and who we are as his people. Therefore, in order to simultaneously stand guard and stand firm, this means that, that we can't avoid or close our eyes in ignorance to the ways of the world either. We can certainly avoid sinful things as we should, but the truth is we can't avoid Babylon completely no matter how hard we try. And so we need to learn how to live as Christians in Babylon. As Kinnaman and Matlock, according to their recent research, wrote, we believe many parents, educators, pastors, and other leaders are trying to prepare young Christians for Jerusalem, to keep them safe and well-protected for a world they no longer live in. But cultivating faith for exiles means, by contrast, that we, young and old alike, trust that Jesus is Lord, even in chaotic, pixelated, no rules, digital Babylon. So ultimately, we, we can't hide from Babylon or pretend that we don't live in it. If we're not prepared and aware of it, we'll be caught off guard, we'll be swayed and seduced. But if we're aware of the devil's schemes, while well, at the same time contending for God's presence and instilling in our lives patterns of spiritual growth, if we know who we are and who God's called us to be, then we'll be able to see and resist the seduction of the world while remaining resilient in our faith. Even as we go to our universities and our places of work and voting stations and coffee shops, and especially as we log on to the internet, we can stand firm. Romans 11-12 calls us to model Daniel's spiritual patterns of life in exile when it says, Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Those are the characteristics of someone who's able to be resilient in exile. We're going to talk, talk more about those, those spiritual patterns as we go through the series. Thirdly then, Daniel's story also teaches us that we become conduits of influence in our culture precisely by being set apart, and not by compromising our faith. We become conduits of influence in our culture precisely by being set apart, not by compromising our faith. Quite often we think that to gain influence or to to love our neighbor, we need to twist or or change our beliefs or convictions to line up with or or be relevant and affirming to the culture around us. Or, Or again, as I said earlier, alternatively, we might try to twist others to be like us. But Daniel and his squad show us that when we focus, first of all, by, by, on being obedient in faith ourselves, that's when God will open the doors of influence and opportunity for our calling in the world. That's when God will use us to influence the world for his kingdom. In other words, we need to stop worrying about fitting in with the world. And on the flip side... Besides issues of social justice, of course, we need to stop being morality police, striving to force the world to look like us. That's not how it works. Neither of those methods work, as we've seen over and over again. Our calling as Christians is precisely to be different than the world. In Christ, we're called to be holy, to be salt. Remnants and preservers of God's truth and love. To become beacons of Jesus' light, which stand out amongst the crowd. But if we become like the world, we're rendered ineffective in our calling. If Daniel just became like everybody else, we wouldn't have the story of Daniel. If we become like the world, we're rendered ineffective in our calling. And yes, we might look weird or even offensive or threatening like Daniel was to the chief eunuch. But yet, as we're faithful in holiness, God will bless us and empower us with his spirit. He'll give us the gifts and the tools we need to influence the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, it starts with determining in our hearts to follow Jesus alone. And when we give our life to Jesus and, and surrender to him as Lord, that's what's supposed to be happening. We're determining in our hearts not to be defiled again by sin, but to follow him and him alone as our salvation, our strength, our life, and supply. Because ultimately, while while Daniel and his friends are are great examples for us of being resilient in faith, ultimately Jesus is the only one who, who did it perfectly, who perfectly resisted every single form of assimilation and temptation that came his way. Most notably, when he spent 40 days in the desert being tempted by Satan, tempted to to turn rocks into foods that he'd turn from trusting in God, tempted to inherit the riches and the authority of the world, tempted to test God. The devil is saying, eat my, my food and drink my wine. And each and every time, Jesus, armed with the knowledge of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, stood firm, resisted. And then he took his faithfulness to the cross to be our perfect sacrifice, and exchanged it with our sin. Jesus was a better Daniel who actually rescues us in exile. And so now because of Jesus' grace, by his righteousness and through his spirit, we can be on guard and stand firm. We can draw near to God. We can be confident and resilient in who we are as citizens of God's kingdom. And so as we move into communion this morning, as we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, I want to encourage you right now, each and every one of you, whether you've done this before or have never done it at all, I want to encourage you to resolve in your heart and mind to become determined to follow Jesus by faith, to make that decision, make that decision right now as we reflect on this passage about him. It says in Hebrews 4:14 4, to 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you've determined in your heart to make that decision, to trust in Jesus, to follow him and him alone, to receive his grace, I encourage you right now to come up and receive the cracker, which represents his body broken, the juice, which represents the blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that welcomes us into a new covenant with him. And I'm And I encourage you right now to come and receive that. And and I encourage you to take that with your families if you have kids up here. And you can also take it on your own or with your friends or however you want to do that this morning. But but I encourage you, as you do that, reflect on, on who we're called to be and who we are in Christ. And determine in your hearts to hold fast to that.